Hello and welcome to episode 3 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. I'd like to start by thanking those who've listened over the last two episodes. Between downloads and live listens, it looks like over 130 lovely people have tuned in so far. The first story of today actually combines my main story with today's From the Archive section. Let me introduce you to the Northumbrian tale of the Simonside Dwarves. For an excellent description of Simonside, I would like to quote from the Northumberland National Park website. This distinctive ridge with its craggy profile stands guard above Rothbury. A walk along the Simonside Hills must not be missed, from the top you have a 360 degree view encompassing the Cheviot Hills and the North Sea coastline. As a special area of conservation, teams of wildlife, such as the curlew, red grouse, mountain bumblebee and even red squirrels in the forest below. Ancient cairns mark the summit of the ridge of Simonside. Below in the forest there is a Bronze Age cemetery, and swords from this era, unmarked by fighting, have been found on the lower slopes of Simonside. Below the ridge lies Lord and Shaw's Hill Fort, built 2,000 years ago. The beacon of Simonside was used to warn of a Scots invasion during Tudor times. Today Simonside appears as an open expanse of wilderness, with a great deal of modern forestry planting and evidence. It is, however, a managed landscape in the truest sense, and regular burning of the heather in the interest of promoting a healthy game bird population lies at the heart of its maintenance as a wild open space. In 1553, however, the hill slopes were recorded as common pasture. Traces of cultivation have been noted around the lower slopes near Tossen, and elements of the medieval field system around Lordenshaws, including boundaries and ridge and furrow ploughing, which postdates the deer park, have been recorded by Peter Topping. These fields may well have been abandoned before 1800. Narrow rig and furrow overlies the broad rig, early ploughing, and this activity may relate to enclosures made within the area known as Rothbury Forest in the 18th century. I first heard about this legend when I was researching for my book Supernatural Northeast Folklore Myths, Legends and Ghosts back in 2009. Two years later I was invited by the Northumberland National Park to spend the night at Simonside and see if I would experience the phenomena allegedly caused by the dwarfs. So on the night of the 29th of October 2011, myself and three other researchers, Suze, Lee and Trevor, headed into the Simonside Hills. Though purely for health and safety purposes, we didn't head for the crag tops, as that could have been a very bad idea in the dark. We'd been provided with a map, and I also had a handheld GPS as well as an old-fashioned compass with me. As the even out in the forest progressed, we experimented with a little photography, demonstrating how long exposure photography, which included infrared light sources, could create purple light anomalies on digital images, as well as how again the long exposure times could use to paint light shapes on images. We visited Little Church Rock and other archaeological sites with no sign of any anomalous activity. We then decided to turn back and head back to the car park. It was noted at the time that the woods were incredibly quiet. Nothing seemed to be stirring in the cold, dark night. We retraced our route back, and by this time it was the early hours of the morning, and the weather was starting to change with rain beginning to splatter down. So we were relieved when we figured we'd be back to the cars before long. No such luck, of course. We arrived at the spot where we all agreed the car park should be, but it simply wasn't there. We checked the map, discussed the route we'd taken, and then fired up the handheld GPS, only to find that it couldn't lock on, impacted by the trees. So we headed for a clearing, got a GPS lock and head out again for the cars. Within 20 minutes it became increasingly obvious that the car park still wasn't where it should be, just around the corner. And I'd noticed that the batteries in my torch were also starting to wear out as the light kept dimming and flickering. The cold of the night was making them drain faster and the torch didn't appreciate the rain. 
Soon we stopped, checked the map and GPS, and found that the GPS had jumped again. It was all a little embarrassing. We weren't newbies at map reading, and it seemed that somehow we were lost. At that point, Sue said she'd spotted some light through the trees, and suggested it was likely, depending on where we actually were, to be the villages of Great or Little Tossen, and if we hit the edge of the forest, we'd likely be able to get our bearings and head back to the car park that way. True enough, we could see the lights twinkling through the trees, so we all headed in that direction. As we came to the edge of the tree line though, the lights just vanished, and we found ourselves on the edge of very boggy ground. Trev suggested it was likely just the topography of the area that was obscuring the lights of the village, so we ventured briefly into the bog, only to return sharpish, noting it was looking a little dicey. I carefully headed out following clumps of thick grass for better footing, and took a GPS reading again. This time the GPS got a strong lock, and we found we were over three miles from where we thought we were, and appeared to have gone in the opposite direction to what we should have on the way back. Which is odd, as we'd use Little Church Rock as a guide, and as such it should have been impossible. So now, feeling somewhat soggy and cold, we all headed back to the cars and then home. Now with this experience as a reference, I'll now tell you the tale of the Simonside Dwarfs. Looking at the usual suspects, in 1584 Reginald Scott references dwarfs in his Discovery of Witchcraft volume, but does not specify Simonside. Similarly, Denham's mid-19th century collection also does not mention Simonside. However, sometime between 1771 and 1805, Sir Walter Scott wrote of the following encounter, not actually at Simonside, but at Todshaw Hill in Dumfriesshire, Scotland. Scott's tale goes, Two men were tethering their horses late one evening upon their outfield pasture for the night, when they heard a voice at some distance crying, Tint, 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 which apparently means lost in Gaelic or Northumbrian. If anybody out there can verify this, it'll be greatly appreciated. When one of them, named Moffat, called out, What the devil's tint you? Come here! Upon which a creature appeared, with something like a human form, but surprisingly little, distorted in features and misshapen in limbs. The two men instantly took to their heels homeward, but the goblin followed them, and Moffat having fallen by the way, it ran over him, and upon getting to his house he found it already there. It abode with the family a long time, and was undoubtedly flesh and blood, ate and drank with the rest, and was particularly fond of cream, which had stolen every opportunity. It was besides very mischievous in disposition, and beat and scratched the children who provoked it without mercy. Now moving on to the late 19th century, tales of the Simonside Dwarfs hit the local press. The earliest and perhaps most detailed account I could find was in the Newcastle Weekly Chronicle 1881, and reads thus. A tribe of queer-looking dwarfish elves and demons, closely related to the Norse Dwerge and German Zwerge, who had their generic name given to them from their being so very deformed, cross-grained and ugly, were once supposed to haunt the Simonside Hills, which lie in the centre of Northumberland between Rothbury and Elsdon. They were often said to be heard and seen by the country people of the olden time, especially the shepherds, whose vocation led them to be out late at night at lambing time, or on the appearance of a storm among these bleak, heath-covered hills, almost worthy to be called mountains, since the clouds frequently rest on their summits. Sometime during the last century, so runs the tale, one individual, bolder than his neighbours, but who had never happened to fall in with any of these supernatural beings during his nocturnal perambulations, and who in fact did not believe in their existence, went out one night on purpose to challenge their appearance, and ascertain who and what they really were, if as he certainly did not expect, they chose to show themselves. Daredevils of this sort were not uncommon in that age, any more than they are now, but their deficiency in the bump of consciousness 
was apt to lead them at times into wild if not perilous adventures, and so it fell out in this case. Our adventurer knew the neighbourhood well, and felt assured that he could soon come safely back, after having satisfied himself that the dwarfies were pure myth, that the noises allegedly be made by them were really made by moss-bummers and heather-bleaters, or by buzzards, shrikes, bitterns, and wild geese flying past, that those who thought they had seen them had either had their eyes glazed by fear, and mistaken in their panic some weird-looking natural object in the dark for an uncanny elf, or been telling downright fibs to astonish the weak-minded natives. He had himself one night heard Rory, on a side note Rory was supposed to be the leader of the dwarfs, when going through a thick, dark plantation, and had afterwards clearly ascertained that the much-redoubted Boggle to be neither more nor less than an owl, which chose to haunt the deepest solitude he could find, and whose hollow and lugubrious but loud and startling cry, like that of a wretch whom some ruffian is in the act of strangling, was enough to make one's blood run cold and one's hair stand on end. Wrapped in his plaid and furnished with a stout staff, he wandered about for some time, but saw nothing portentous. At last, before wending his way homeward, his fancy took him to pretend he was lost, so he shouted lustily, Tint, tint, in the old Northumbrian vernacular. Immediately a light shone toward him, like a candle in a shepherd's cottage window, and he set out for the place with great care, as the ground was rough and broken, and the night darkish. He soon came to a deep hollow, from which the turf or peat had been dug, and which was now filled with mud and water. This stayed his progress, for he was resolved it should be no slough of despond, this was the same meaning a state of extreme depression, either to get drowned in or to scramble out, as Christian did the pilgrim's progress on the further side. So raising a piece of turf lying at his feet, he threw it into the moss hag and splash. The imps it would seem thought he had fallen in, and that he would assuredly be suffocated amongst the filthy mud, and therefore their devilish purpose had been accomplished, out went their light. The conqueror, as he deemed himself to be, was overjoyed at his victory, the one at the expense of his hitherto stubborn incredulity, for now, indeed, it really seemed that dwarfies there were, and that, like the greedy murderous wreckers on some parts of the British coast, they hung out false lights to wild wanderers to their doom. Turning on his heel, therefore, he began to proceed homewards, but, not satisfied with what he had so cleverly accomplished, and anxious, moreover, to have something further to tell his wondering neighbours, he again began to cry with all his might, Tint! Tint! But now, lo and behold, no wonder his defiant spirit quailed, when three little demons came up in hard pursuit of him, with bowed legs, scraggy arms and distorted features, and holding lighted torches in their tiny hands, as if they were wishful to get a clear view of their daring foe. No wonder he took to his heels, but before he had run many yards, he found himself surrounded by a great crowd of elves, each with a torch in one hand and a club in the other. They brandished their weapons as if they would hinder his flight and drive him back into the slough, but he turned and charged them, staff in hand, with its oaken weight smote the foremost to the earth. At least so he thought, for they instantly vanished. His well-aimed blow had fallen upon nothing palpable, and out of his reach from the surrounding darkness new swarms appeared, larger and more frightful than before. His valour at last began to wane, not because he was physically weakened, but because the grim weird faces, which were not of earthly mould, struck like fiery darts into his soul, paralysed him with something worse than fear, with horror indescribable. In this condition he sank down until daybreak, and only recovered his senses when the light arose, 
and he could find his way home a sadder and wiser man. On another occasion, a traveller found himself benighted in these wild regions, and following up a glimmering light came to what seemed a hut. On the floor, a fire was burning between two rough grey stones. He thought the place must lately been left by the gypsies, for the burning embers were those of wood, and on one side lay two gateposts, ready to be chopped up for more. He made up the fire with some of the refuse brushwood, which was strewn around the floor, as if left from besom making, and having thus made things comfortable, sat down on one of the stones. But lo, a visitor enters, a little creature, uncouth human shape, no higher than his knee, waddling in and quietly sitting down on the other stone. The traveller, who had been fully instructed by his sage grandmother in the ways of boggles, knew how to behave in the presence of such individuals as this evidently was, and without either speaking or moving, sat stolid and self-possessed. As the fire blazed up, he looked calmly into the hollow eyes of his new friend, and examined with no little interest his stern, vindictive features, and his short, strong, ungainly limbs. Soon, however, feeling the cold night air set in, against which the hut offered but poor protection, he broke a small piece of wood over his knee, and laid the pieces on the waning fire. The demon seemed to look upon this action with contempt, and to show a superior power, scornfully seized a gatepost, broke it over his knee, and laid the pieces on the fire likewise. The mortal now sat still till morning, and let the fire die away into the darkness, not being very anxious to see any further demonstrations of supernatural power. Day dawned, and where was he? Sitting alone on a stone, with a heap of white ashes before him, the fiendish dwarf had vanished, together with the spectral hut but the stone was a real one, being one of the highest pinnacle crags beetling over a deep precipice, down whose rugged steep the slightest careless movement would have thrown him. Now jump ahead to 1944 and the publication of Grice's book Folk Tales of the North Country. It is Grice's story that lends itself to most of the modern retellings of the dwarf story, where while the tale of the traveller finding the phantom cottage remains the same, Grice changes the story to include a physical description of the dwarf, which reads, It was a dwarf, who stood no higher than the traveller's knee. His coat was made out of lambskin, his trousers and shoes of moleskin, and his hat of green moss, decorated with a tall feather from a cock pheasant. This paints a slightly different picture to the early Twisted and Ugly version, but it must be noted that Grice's work was published seven years after Disney's Snow White was released, so it seems that the Simonside Dwarfs received a Disney makeover. One of my theories is that the origins of stories such as the Dwarfs and other boggles within the region possibly lie in our ancestors' attempts to explain the remnants of the prehistoric archaeological remains that surrounded them. As far as I know, and I'd love it if anybody can correct me on this, nothing is known about what common folk knew about these remains during the 15th to 18th centuries, when most of these stories seem to be at their most popular. Interestingly, the historian Tomlinson noted in his 1889 publication The Comprehensive Guide to the County of Northumberland, that an illicit whisky still was discovered in the area in 1840 by excise officers. Could in fact the Simonside Dwarfs, inspired by Sir Walter Scott's Dumfrieshire account, simply be a tale designed by whisky smugglers to keep people away from their stills? If anyone listening does indeed know of early tales of the Simonside Dwarfs, please get in touch via the website and let me know. Many thanks in advance. Today's listener story was submitted by Julia. I went into my bedroom in my childhood home and I could smell a strong smell of cigarette smoke. No one in my household smoked and my neighbours didn't either. It was such a strong smell 
I went and told my mum and dad, who also thought it was rather odd. My dad can't smell very well, but he went into the room and said he could smell something, but couldn't say what it was. When I was left in the room alone, I had a horrible feeling that there was something I needed to know, but no one was telling me. So I left the room to find my mum. She was in her bedroom. So I went in and sat in the bed and said to her, Is there something that no one is telling me? She then responded, Not that I can think of. My mum then left the room to get something, and I then saw a piece of folded paper on the bedside table. And being nosy, I picked it up and had a look, and it was a notification of my grandmother's death. My mum returned to the room, and I said, Why didn't you tell me that my grandmother had died? My mum told me, I didn't think you'd remember her anyway. My family had a rather troublesome relationship with my grandparents, so I hadn't seen them since I was a child. I left the room and went back to my bedroom, and the smell of cigarettes had gone. My grandmother was a heavy smoker. Many thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed episode 3. For more episodes and information, please see the Within the Boggartwood website, which can be found at theboggartwood.uk, or on social media at facebook.com slash withinthebogartwood, Instagram at instagram.com slash withinthebogartwood, and if you would like to help out and support the project financially, Within the Boggartwood's Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash withinthebogartwood. Until next time, stay safe and have a good week.